Evening, everyone. My name's Greg Whitfield. I'm Junior Research Fellow in Lies here at the IAS. We're really proud today to welcome Professor Stephen Fuller. Steve holds the August Comp Chair in Social Epistemology at Warwick University. And he's written about just a staggering number of books and articles. The, the full count makes me uh, angstful in a way that is deeply uncomfortable. Uh, but they are incredibly, even more incredibly, on such a diverse array of topics. Things like <clears throat> the governance of science and knowledge management, Thomas Kuhn and and versus Karl Popper, transhumanism, intelligent design, evolution, neuroscience, and even academic life and university governance. Uh, his latest book, Post-Truth, Knowledge as a Power Game, is out last year. You know, he's no doubt... This month. Just this next month? Week. Next week. Next week, okay. Next week, so this is why you haven't seen it yet. But, uh, next week. I can send it to you, actually. Please. Yeah. Yeah. And he's no doubt published a new article while I've been introducing him. Now, tonight he's here as a part of our ongoing seminar series in lies. And he'll be asking whether lies haven't gotten a bit of a bum rap. Yeah. Uh, please join me in welcoming Professor Fuller. Well, I'm the man for the job to see where the lies have got a bum rap. Um, but first of all, thank you for all for showing up. Um, and um, I just want to, in a way, in, to, to sort of emphasize the kind of considerations that I'm going to be talking about here are related to, um, uh, well, this book that's coming out next week uh, called Post-Truth, no uh, Knowledge is a Power Game with Anthem Press. Um, and um, But it's also part of a kind of longer kind of trajectory of mine where I've been thinking about obviously the nature of truth and lying is implicated in that in a very strong way. And so what I want to do uh, is to, for those of you who have some familiarity with my work, I don't know how, how many of you do, I want to go back to uh, a book uh, that I wrote, I published in 2009 called The Sociology of Intellectual Life. Um, and it was about, and the, and the subtitle is The Life of the Mind in and Around uh, Academia. Uh, and uh, one of the things that I said there, and, the, and, and this was kind of, this part of the book originally came from an article that I wrote uh, in the Philosopher's Magazine, uh, which is this kind of popular periodical you may see in, in bookstalls and things, um, having to do with uh, the issue of intellectual responsibility, okay, um, especially in the context of academic freedom and stuff like that which uh, is not just an issue that is with us now, but has always been with us, and so it was with us 10 years ago. Um, and there, one of the things that I said in terms of what was important about intellectual responsibility uh, wasn't necessarily that you said what you believed, but rather you said what needed to be said. Okay? Um, and of course, if you say what needs to be said in a given context, you may be, strictly speaking, lying, right? In the sense that this may not capture your belief. And insofar as, you know, people interpret what people say prima facie as a statement of belief, at least to the best of their ability, they may be wrong, but they're not lying, um, that uh, I was actually arguing for a kind of higher form of lying, you might say. Um, and, that, and that is in the book. And it's one of the things that people have picked up on and have found very interesting. And interestingly, perhaps the most interesting aspect of it, it hasn't been completely dismissed. Okay. Um, 
And so this has to, and, and this is related to a lot of issues that I think are very much with us today about um, how do you speak into a context, right? What exactly do you say? Um, and I think we, are, we live in a culture um, where in a sense, uh, and, and this might be part of the, um, the kind of thing that, it, again, I don't know if you, if, I don't know if this name means, maybe it does mean something around here, uh, is uh, Richard Sennett. Right, the sociologist. He's uh, he, he spends some of his time at the LSE now. But his 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 first famous book back in the 1970s was called The Fall of Public Man. I don't know if you've run across that book, The Fall of Public Man. It's a very interesting book, and it's about the rise uh, of the cult of sincerity. Okay. Um, and one of the things that he argues in this book, so this book is published in the 1970s. I was just a, a student at the time, you know, a, a student actually going from uh, high school in, into university. Um, and, um, and, and, and it was a very striking book because one of the things that he was arguing was that in the period in which we were living then, and so he's thinking about the 1960s and 1970s, right, uh, where people have to let it all hang out, right, and people have to always be speaking their mind, um, that in fact this was in fact very this in fact really restricted the range of discourse and the range of possibilities that could be taken seriously, okay? Because basically people were there was a kind of uh, demand that people speak from their experience, and people's experience is always limited. It's specific, it's genuine, but it's limited. And insofar as we're talking about a public discourse, where part of what we want to do is to actually expand the possibilities of thought. Right, and the possibilities for action and the possibilities for, for all of us to kind of move out of, uh, as it were, our empirical comfort zones, that is to say, the things with which we have been conducting our lives so far and which we have been experiencing and which reinforces and creates a kind of you know, inductive momentum, right, where we sort of believe the whole world is going to continue to be kind of the way I've experienced it. And if you disagree with me, well, you know, at the end of the day, this is the kind of person I am because of my experience. Right? That, now, that's the cult of authenticity, right? The cult of sincerity, which is very much part of, uh, of I mean, the way Senate diagnoses it is very much uh, the sort of thing that marks the transition in the, in the late 18th, early 19th centuries uh, between uh, the Enlightenment and, the romantic, and Romanticism as kind of worldviews, okay? Um, now, these two movements... Which again, if you people you know study Western civilization and the sort of periodization are usually seen as sequential. Nevertheless, there's a considerable amount of overlap, and the sort of people that we're talking about in the two movements, especially when we're talking about the cusp, you know, around 1800, right, are people who you know, depending on how you read them, can be put into either camp. Okay, and so there is this kind of flip that takes place, and 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 Senate is basically reflecting on this, and so he's looking at it from the standpoint of what was lost when people uh, started to think that the only way in which, you know, you could be a real person, right, and that you could, you know, be, as it were, you had to always be representing what you feel, what you think, what you believe. That is the thing you have to always be doing. What's lost when you get to that mode? Because that's not actually the mode that was before. Now, as you know, of course, for most of human history, there has been, uh, at least in terms of, let, let's say, uh, advanced literate cultures, uh, there's been considerable amount of censorship and restraint uh, in the means by which uh, communication has taken place. So there was no expectation, prima facie, uh, that people would necessarily uh, be speaking their mind in any literal sense. 
they would be saying the kinds of things they ought to be saying by virtue of the sorts of roles they occupy. Right? And, and, and if you look at the way in which person is defined within the law, until you get to the early modern period, um, it is primarily uh, in terms of uh, role occupancy. That's your personhood comes from your status. This may be hereditary status, you know, whether you're born as a, a serf or whether you're born as a noble or whatever, uh, and that provides certain kinds of constraints into how you can express yourself. But of course, uh, they're the modes of expressions that are licensed by virtue of becoming a member of a profession. Clerical profession, medical profession, legal profession, right? All those professions, they're there too. Um, but those are, the, those are the things that actually determine, you know, the, the constraints within you which you can operate. Okay, um, and one of the things that becomes very interesting when you get into the early modern period is obviously, um, and this has, I think, a lot to do uh, with to do with, let's say, uh, the kind of the Reformation, uh, the Protestant Reformation. And one of the things that it does very strongly is it really puts, as it were, the individual, you know, as it were, as the uh, as the primary bearer of truth or falsehood. Right? You can't blame it on your role. You can't blame it on your background. It's you. You're the one who has to decide whether you believe in God or you believe the Bible. You're the one who has to make these decisions. Right? The Protestant Reformation puts that front and center. It is not enough just to obey what priests say and stuff like that. But you've got to stand for the stuff yourself. Right? You've got to stand for it yourself. You've got to assert it. Right? You have to bear witness. This is all very much part of what the Protestant thing was. Um, and, and this is where the, you know, when the evangelists start moving in, 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 beginning with Martin Luther, actually, and certainly as we move into the uh, 17th and uh, 18th centuries, right, um, that, that there's this demand that people express themselves. John Milton, okay, John Milton, great Puritan thinker, was the secretary to Oliver Cromwell, um, and in his great work, um, Areopagitica, which is probably the most... Uh, well, the first, I would say, first really articulated modern expression of the doctrine of free expression, right, 1679 or something like that, so about 10 years before John Locke, right, and certainly before liberalism in any kind of recognizable political ideological form, and, that, and that's interesting for, for, for the standpoint of what I'm saying, because if you look at how he's grounding this idea of free expression, it has to do that we're creating the image and likeness of God, and the way we show our godlike power is by freely expressing ourselves in words. And in fact, we should have such license that we should even have the right to defend ourselves, and this is if you follow American Bill of Rights, First Amendment, freedom of expression, second one, freedom to bear arms. Those two things go together. Okay, if you read John Milton, you see it exactly. John Milton is not afraid to blow somebody's brains out in order to defend his right to free speech. Okay, he's real clear about that. There is a lot of threatening of violence in that discourse of free expression. Okay, and so the whole idea of being true to oneself, right, really starts to get put on the table. Now, um, the people from the Enlightenment... Um, you know, so if we're thinking about the French Enlightenment and Kant and, and Hume and all these Scottish Enlightenment people too, um, they, they're a bit put off by this. I mean, they, they, there's a sense of it, whoa, <laughs> this might be going a little too far in certain ways, right, if it were literally allowed. And of course, you see what happened with the English Revolution, 
right? And the bloodiness that, that was involved there, even though that did set a kind of benchmark, which was in, you know, in various ways reproduced by the American Revolution, the French Revolution, every other revolution in the 19th and 20th centuries. But nevertheless, from the standpoint of the people in the Enlightenment, they didn't really want this happening again, right? And, and, that the, and the guys like Milton um, got to be put to one side, right? I mean, they, you know, I mean, the only place where this kind of Miltonic vision of free expression and speaking your mind really took hold was the United States. And it's taken, and it's, and it's still there, as we know, right? That is the, if you want to understand where that American mentality comes from that puts free expression and guns together, okay, Milton, who is a great, one of the great theorists of Puritanism, right, within the whole Anglican complex, okay? So, so you put that, and he's got Satan, and he's got all the other stuff that you associate with the way Americans go on about this, okay? He's got it all there. Um, but the thing is, the Enlightenment people thought that was like letting the genie out of the bottle. This was a problem. And so what they, came, what they did was um, they did something that in a way um, would have uh, aggravated Plato, but in a way kind of mitigates from uh, what Milton was, uh, was pursuing in a way. Um, and that was the idea of wearing masks, right? The idea of assuming roles. In other words, roles aren't things that you're born into or that you get to elected office, but these are things that you can actually assume unto yourself. And this is where theater becomes very important, right? Speaking in guises, speaking with masks, okay? Which then allows the possibility that you can actually express many different controversial alternative viewpoints and things of that kind, right? And you never have to say, I believe this stuff. This is just a play, guys. Lighten up. Right? And so here I think it's always very important to recognize this word in English, entertainment. Okay, entertainment, we think of it as fun and frolics and what we see on television. But of course the word entertainment originally had to do uh, with actually thinking about things, right? Having them run through your mind. And in fact the original idea, the original model for this was someone like, um, what, the fool? speaking in the ear of the king, right, in these plays where he's the one, you know, putting some ideas in the king's head, right? And he's not taking responsibility for them. He's like, hey, look, I'm just a fool. I'm not telling you my certified beliefs that I would go and die for. I'm not John Milton, right? But I'm just planting a certain kind of notion that you might want to consider and you might want to play with. Right? That is the model. That's entertainment. Okay? And it was this kind of conception that the Enlightenment really championed. And it championed in, and, and if you look at uh, the kinds of plays and dramas uh, that were, were really uh, very big at that time in the 18th century, right? They're comedies of manners, they're satires, they're things where there is kind of misplaced identity, right? Where people are playing one role rather than another, a lot of hide-and-seek kind of stuff going on, right? Where you never quite know what is real and what's appearance. And, and of course, very often, very controversial topics were being traversed in the, in, in the context, especially from a religious standpoint, Right? But nobody was actually asserting anything in their own voice. And so the idea was you could always get away with it. Right? But nevertheless, in some sense, you make your point. Okay? Now, of course, these things could go too far, 
and there were all kinds of censorship campaigns here and there, kind of spottily enforced across Europe during the 18th century. There was certainly a lot of that going on, right? But for the most part, what the Enlightenment did was it really opened up the horizons for people to think about a wide variety of things and, and, and kind of licensed it, you know, without having to say you actually have to believe the stuff. Okay, but of course what happens always is at some point somebody does believe the stuff and then you get a revolution. Right? That's basically how it goes, right? This is why censorship uh, always, uh, you know, is always in the background lurking because there is this concern, right, that entertainment is never merely entertainment and if you, and if you entertain something long enough it becomes incorporated, it becomes part of the way you think about things and you act as if it were true. Okay? And, you know, when we get to the end of the 19th century, right, we have these various doctrines of fictionalism, right? Um, again, I don't know how, this is stuff I actually do talk about in the book, all this. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Hans Weinger. Does this name mean anything to anyone? Okay, so Hans Weinger uh, is German philosopher, uh, late 19th, early 20th century, uh, and uh, someone who was influenced by Nietzsche, uh, but what's interesting about him is he was a total academic guy, okay? Uh, in fact, he's the guy who found Kant Studien, which is the main journal for Kant studies, okay? And he's a Kantian of sorts. And, and what he, he came up with a philosophy that in English is called fictionalism um, and uh, was, in fact, very popular among literary people, lit literary theorists of, let's say, the 1920s and 30s. Uh, if you think about C.K. Ogden and I.A. Richards, if you remember these guys from your ancient studies of, of literary uh, criticism, um, uh, the, these are the guys. In fact, I think Ogden may have even translated Weinger's main book. Now, his main book is called The Philosophy of As If, right? Like, as if, right? Alzob in Kant. It's a phrase that occurs again and again in Kant, right? As if, right? You know, you behave as if X were true. Do you believe X is true? Well, I don't know. I can't have, you know, if you're Kant, you have no way of deciding. And, you know, the point is that's not the question, right? The question is you act as if it were true. That's fictionalism, okay? Where, in a sense, you suspend uh, this kind of authenticity question about truth. And so Weinger, in his book, The Philosophy of As If, which is still a very interesting book, he talks about all the various realms of knowledge in which this kind of fictionalist thinking is just all over the place, and we just don't realize it. And so, of course, one of the obvious areas uh, is the law, legal fictions, right? Jeremy Bentham, the great man who's here, um, you know, uh, he, uh, not here in the room, he's out there in the corridor somewhere. <laughs> um, he, you know, he talked about this quite explicitly, right? Uh, because one of the things that, you know, and the reason why Bentham is connected to this, of course, is because Bentham's view about the law was that the law wasn't really about principles in any kind of abstract a priori sense, right? But the law was about the consequences of enacting laws, right? So in other words, do these laws work, right? And that was always Bentham's underlying principle. Do they work? What are the consequences, right? And whatever it takes, you know, to make the law work so you reach a just conclusion, which is one that maximizes welfare, right, in the utility calculus, blah, 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 right, then that's what you do. So you don't bother with legal principle in any kind of a priori sense. You don't, you know, you don't do like Rawls with theory of justice and then deduce what laws are appropriate. 
No, you look at what actually works. What will work to do what you think is right from the standpoint of policy? Okay? And that's a fictionalist approach to the law because you're treating the law, treating the law as a pure instrument. Right? The only, the only uh, ontological status it has is its role in bringing about a result, and the result is the thing you're really interested in. Once the result is brought about, you can actually get rid of the law, right? So the idea of laws being consistent and so forth, this kind of thing that legal scholars worry about, that's a secondary consideration. Efficacy is what you want. So, and, and this is not just Bentham, right? There's this whole tradition, right, which is a very important tradition actually in the American jurisprudence, legal realism it's called, right? Very, um, activist you know, judges making law on the hoof, as it were, right? Uh, in this country, people get accused of this all the time, of course. Um, and, and this is fictionalism. But of course, you have fictionalism in mathematics as well, okay, where you conjure up entities that have uh, no uh, necessary relationship to uh, experience. And here in Weyinger's day, we're thinking about non-Euclidean geometry, which doesn't correspond to anyone's experience. But nevertheless, you can do this thing systematically, and you can project a world, and the world has certain properties attached to it. And lo, lo and behold, you find out in the 20th century, all of a sudden, Einstein realizes this is actually the geometry of space and time. How, well, how about that, right? And, and so the point that Weyinger would be making there is that, in fact, um, you never quite, you know, when you say as if, you're not saying necessarily that it's false, right? You're suspending the truth judgment. You're, you're not making that instrumental in your advancing the claim. It may turn out to be true. This is the point, right? It may turn out to be true. And it's interesting why it may turn out to be true. Does it turn out to be true because you make it true? Or does it turn out to be true because it just turns out the, the world is exactly as you had predicted? Right? And, and this is, in a way, kind of the difference between you know, politics and science, in a sense, right? these two possibilities. But they're both covered under the rubric of fictionalism. And the point is, you don't actually have to believe any of these things that you're advancing. This is not a necessary condition. In fact, you may not even believe, you may not believe them. But you think, in fact, this may get somewhere. Now, you know, my own training uh, is in the uh, history and philosophy of science, originally. I have a PhD from the University of Pittsburgh, did my MPhil in Cambridge in history and philosophy of science. Um, and, and since I've moved back to this country, I've become a, a professor of sociology, so it's all very accidental in that sense. Um, but one of the things that we do talk a lot about in the philosophy of science um, is about the epistemological status of theories that you advance, even though you have no reason to believe they're true, but they might advance inquiry. You put them out there because you're getting some interesting consequences from the theory that then allows you to explore stuff, but people really don't believe that the fundamental premises of the theory is true. But they're still going along with it. Okay? Now, in the philosophy of science, and, and this is part of the heritage of fictionalism, right? We call this you generally instrumentalism. That's where this, this term instrumentalism comes from. Um, and um, again, the question then arises there too, what happens uh, if um, it turns out these things work, that these things, uh, you know, how many, of the, how many of the consequences of following this theory have to turn out to be good or productive or correct in order for you to be licensed to actually believe the premises of the theory? Right? This is always, this is the, the question the philosophers uh, are interested in, right? Uh, you know, is there some point at which instrumentalism flips and becomes what philosophers call realism? 
right? Where the idea is that the, the premises of your theory actually correspond to something about the structure or the nature of the world. At what point do you get a flip? Okay, and some people are just permanently skeptical about this possibility. Others think there can be this kind of transformation that takes place. Okay, now, you see, what, what the point, the whole point of this line of thinking that I've been pr pr uh, projecting here um, is that it's all about opening up possibilities, right? Possibilities that go beyond what experience as such would license, right? So in this respect, uh, they, uh, I would call them um, counterinductive. Right, um, and, um, and in my book on, on post-truth, um, I actually uh, support this, I would say, um, and, um, and, I, and I give a kind of a, a backdrop to uh, why people have been against it as well. Uh, and I haven't yet really talked much about politics, but I may get into that a little bit later, because that's obviously a big part of what this is about. So, so my book basically faces two ways in terms of talking about this thesis I've been articulating. One way is to uh, the science side, as I've been mostly talking about, and the other is to the politics side, okay? Now, I mentioned a little earlier when I was talking about um, how the Enlightenment tried to marginalize the Miltonic impulse, right, by, 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 pro by proliferating roles and masks and drama and stuff like that. One of the things that I said in passing uh, was that uh, Plato wouldn't like it, okay? And that's really important, I think, uh, where, because Plato is a really important guy in this story. Um, and because um, one of the things that I think Plato really understood really well, so Plato um, is a guy who really understood the power of post-truth, you might say. He really understood it, and he wanted to make sure it stayed locked up. But he understood it very well. This is the point about him, Okay. And what it's all about, and I think this is true of all the things I've been talking about so far, it's about what I call in the book modal power. That is control over what people think is possible. Modality is a branch of metaphysics, right? It's concerned with, in the broad sense, how things are in the world. Possible, impossible, contingent, necessary. You've run across these terms, right? Um, and in the law, we have terms like permissible, obligatory, right? Prohibited. Right? We've got all these kinds of words, too. They're, they basically mirror these modal terms. Okay? Um, and, and what Plato was really worried about uh, in the world in which he was living in, which was right you know, in the declining period of Athens, right, just before it gets conquered by Sparta and the rest of it, um, is that um, you've got these sophists roaming around, right, T teaching people how to win arguments and things like that. And then you also have the playwrights and the poets and they are conjuring up all kinds of scenarios, um, and they're doing it in incredibly vivid ways, and they're doing it in more or less the same places where people are also doing business at another time of the day. Okay, so in other words, you know, you've got like multi-purpose sites here, uh, and, and uh, so, you know, and so, and so what Plato was worried about, again, you have to imagine yourself living there at the time, right, was the fact that people would just be blurring Right? The difference between the kind of very vivid speech, let's say someone gives on stage as part of a play, and what a politician says. Right? Uh, and, and supposing you have a vivid speech that is in fact going against what the government policy currently is, then the guy on the stage looks like an opposition leader in the making. And as you know about the way in which uh, dramatists, 
theater people generally have often been seen as rather subversive, especially in the, uh, in the modern period, 19th and 20th centuries, right? Uh, that, that, that this is not a, not a trivial concern. And, and, and the way Plato diagnosed it was that people, um, in a way, are so impressionable, you might say, and these dramatists and these sophists are so good, in a sense, at what they do, um, that, that people blur, right, uh, what is real and not real, okay? Um, and, and so you have to institutionalize what is real and not real. This is Plato's point. You have to institutionalize, and this is where censorship comes in. Because what censorship is ultimately about is about restricting what people think is possible. Things look, you know, the, things become more realistic if you can't imagine them being otherwise. Trust me. <laughs> right? Things don't seem so realistic if you can imagine alternatives where you just think, it's an accident that we're doing this, we could be doing that. So why aren't we doing that? Right? I mean, this is the kind of thing that Plato was worried about because this causes instability in society. And again, if you know the history of Athens in this period, they're changing rulers like underwear. Right? Everything's done by voice vote, by lot. Right? It's, it's just turmoil. Endless turmoil. You read Thucydides, the Peloponnesian Wars. Athenians can't, you know, just when they think they're winning, they screw up, they put the wrong guy in, everything falls apart. Right? This is Athens. Okay? Um, and Plato says, we've got to put an end to this. We have to put an end to this volatility, right? Disru disruptiveness and so forth. Okay? And this is where you need the philosopher king. And the philosopher king is going to enforce some order here. Right? He's going to ban the poets and the playwrights. He's going to get rid of the sophists. And it's, by the way, not because of their skills. Their skills are very good. In fact, they're the exact skills that Plato himself needs. And, this is, and, there's, and, you know, from a skill set standpoint, there's not that much difference if you read the dialogues between what Socrates is doing and what the sophists are doing. It's just it's kind of spun a bit. But, you know, it's to make Socrates look better. But in terms of the actual dialectical skills and the, you know, this, the, they're not so different. So, so it's not an issue of the skill of speaking and reasoning in public and all that kind of thing. It is the purpose to which it is being put, okay? And, and I think from our standpoint, you know, for a month today, looking at what, what Plato is worried about, I think we would say that Plato is the kind of guy uh, who is worried about marketizing, you know, possibility, right? By, by, you know, marketizing reality. We said, well, you know, we've got lots of different realities out there. Which one do you want? I can conjure it up for you in a moment's notice. Right? That's marketizing reality. And what that does is it proliferates possibilities. However, if you've got a monopoly on reality, what I call in the book monopoly intellectualism, right, where you just exclude everything else. There is no market. There are no alternatives. Okay? There's just this one guy and what he says. Okay? Now, um, one of the things that I talk about in the book in relation to this, if we want to kind of fast forward this 2,000 years and get us to the 20th century in, in terms of how this played out, um, if you look at the rise of the field of public relations, Okay, and some of you, some of you may have seen the um, the, uh, the documentary that Adam Curtis, the filmmaker, did a few years ago, uh, called "The Century of the Self." Have you seen this? Okay, you've seen it. Good. All right. Well, you know the the centerpiece uh, in this uh, in this thing in the first episode, at least, um, is this um, kind of uh, competition rivalry between uh, Walter Lippmann and Edward Bernays. Okay, and in this story, 
Bernays is like the sophist playwright type guy, and Lippmann is like the Plato guy, okay? And where these people began, where they were both, I mean, the, the, this is the interesting part of the story in a way, that they both began as young men in their, in their 20s, both of them um, had very similar kind of backgrounds in a way, they were first generation of Jews to go to Ivy League universities in the United States, um, and they were very much swept up in the progressive movement, the US progressive movement of the early 20th century, um, and they were captivated by the vision uh, being promoted by Theodore Roosevelt and especially Woodrow Wilson. Um, and one of the things that Woodrow Wilson was very keen on, because these people, Roosevelt and Wilson, were very keen on uh, uh, projecting America you know, uh, as, the, uh, well, as the way America, in a way, still sees itself as this kind of um, champion of liberty, democracy, you know, basically world power, ultra, ultra world power. Right, Europe is divisive, everything else is scrambled, right? But America stands proud and tall, right? Uh, defending the world. This idea was a hallmark of the progressive era as a new way of branding American nationalism, which up to that point had been very parochial. America was a place that people went, went to to get away from everything else before, right? Hence the immigration. But now we're getting a different look at America. America is this progressive, stepping out into the world, internationalist kind of country, okay? Bernays and Lippmann were on board with that. So what was the first assignment? The first assignment is to get America into World War I. That's not easy. America wasn't attacked by, in World War I. Right? America is a country that fights wars, historically, at least up to that point, right, when they're being attacked. So the British tries to invade America, right? The Spanish try to invade America, right? I mean, that, that happens, and then they fight. Uh, and of course, America can have a civil war, so Americans can fight amongst themselves too. Right? But what America doesn't do is it doesn't go overseas and engage in other people's wars. Ah, the good old days, right? Uh, World War I marked the change in that approach. And so what Wilson, President Wilson, who was very keen on getting America into World War I, because the way he saw what was going on in World War I, it was a total mess. And as you, you know, those of you who studied the history of World War I know it was kind of a mess, right? And it wasn't clear how it was going to resolve itself or anything. And so Wilson said, ah, I see an opportunity here for America to sort it all out and come out to be the big guy at the end. Okay, but you needed to actually get the American people on board. So what you got was this mass propaganda campaign that was being carried on in the newsreels and the movie theaters and all that kind of stuff, right, that was basically trying, was telling to the American people that they had an obligation to go and finish off Europe's war even though we'd not, we'd not been attacked. That was a pretty tall order, but it worked. It worked. I mean, Wilson had to lose his Secretary of State over the matter. A lot of the politicians thought this was bonkers, right? But Wilson got his way, and Bernays and Littman devised the ads, devised the advertising strategy. Okay? Okay. And so, the war ends. And, uh, and you know, Wilson's there, Treaty of Versailles, all this kind of stuff. It's a very short-lived kind of success, as you know, because America didn't join the League of Nations. America basically became isolationist again until Franklin Roosevelt. But the point was, that moment was incredibly impressive. And so then the question is, what is the lesson to learn from it? And that's where Bernays and Littman parted ways. Because Bernays basically thought, we could turn this into a business. We can get people to buy anything. If they can buy going to war for, you know, for, you know, when they weren't even attacked, my God, imagine what we could do for cars, you know, or cigarettes or, you know, whatever. 
Um, and so public relations begins on the back of this, right? Walter Lippmann immediately is writing against this, okay? Um, and Walter Lippmann is the one who coins this phrase that Noam Chomsky then picks up on in the 1980s, manufacturing consent, right? Which is what these guys were doing when they were getting America into World War I. They were manufacturing consent. And what they would, you know, so in other words, um, so if you were to ask like straightforward questions like, is it really in America's interest to go uh, in, into this war? Um, and, and do people, re and, and do you really believe that this is going to be, you know, as noble as, you know, as you think it is? Or is it just going to allow, have a lot of casualties and things like this? Because it turned out, of course, World War I from the American side was, you know, second to the Civil War at that time of the bloodiest war that America fought. Right? Even though America was the winner and even the peacemaker, nevertheless, in terms of the casualties suffered, it was second only to the American Civil War at that point. World War II and changed that. But, but the point was, it, it, there was a lot of loss in that war over a very short period of time because America only entered in the final year. It took a while for the campaign to work. But America came in at the end and put a lot of force into it. And, and, and Lippmann, you know, thought, wow, this is like, Diabolical. We have got to have government control. We have got to, we have got to, you know, we, we just cannot, you know, so for example, uh, again, 1920s, radio, we're talking mass media, we're talking broadcasting, coming on stream in a really big way for the first time. And so Lippmann is saying we need licensing for advertisers. We just can't let any old schmo with some money, you know, broadcast across the airwaves, right? Because, you know, this is thing is powerful. We just can't, and we just can't have people entertaining all kinds of crazy ideas just to sell goods, right? Because Bernays, if you ever read Bernays' book, um, Propaganda, that's one of his books. The other one, Crystallizing Public Opinion, those are the two main books from the 1920s, right? He is really clear um, that uh, what, you have to, what you have to do uh, is it's, it, it's less about whether you believe, as it were, the product or the person that you are promoting is inherently good, but you have to see the good in them and promote that. Okay, so in other words, you could be a kind of bit detached from the situation, but what you have to do is you really have to understand the client well, and you have to understand the audience well, and then you have to make them match. That's what you're doing. And it's a, you know, an art, a science, whatever. And in fact, what Bernays did in his propaganda book having seen that Lippmann was trying to, uh, you know, make him look bad by saying that this is manufacturing consent, he called it engineering consent. So he flipped the phrase, engineering consent, to make it look like there's a kind of science going on here or something, right? Um, now, Bernays won that argument, no doubt about it. He won that argument, okay? Uh, and of course, what you saw then is this proliferation of possibilities and all the rest of it, Right, which we now associate with capitalism, of course, you know, and, and consumer capitalism in particular, uh, and also as it's moved into the political arena, also with these kind of wild swings of opinion where every, people seem to be manipulated and so forth. But this is actually originally what Plato was concerned about. It's the same thing. It's the same thing, only in a way the stakes are somewhat higher, it's, it's more materialized, right? But it's the same kind of issue. Um, and so the idea, now the thing though I want to stress about this is that when you're looking at what Plato's strategy is, if you look at what Walter Lippmann's strategy is, because if you know about Walter Lippmann in terms of what his positive contributions were, Walter Lippmann is very much responsible for this kind of self-presentation of journalism as objective and neutral. 
He's, he is, and this is why he's seen as the dean of journalism. He's the one who made journalism professional. Because prior to Walter Lippmann, in fact, Walter Lippmann was one of the people who uh, was involved in the transition, um, journalism was very sensationalistic. Muckrakers. Think about the muckrakers. They were the best. But there was a lot of worse stuff as well out there. Okay? Uh, and, and, and Lippmann really changed the image and talked about the need for professionalism. And what does professionalism mean? Professionalism is a certain kind of self-presentation, right, where you come across as objective and neutral, um, and, and, you, and you try to make things balanced. Why? Not because that's the truth either, okay? This is the point, right? It's not because that's the way the world really is, but rather that's the way you have to present the world in order to keep a stable social order. So this is Plato, okay? And it's ultimately not about telling the truth as opposed to a lie. It is about telling the right lie, right? The lie that works, right? The thing that needs to be said. And if you know something about Walter Lippmann's career in terms of what he was doing when he wasn't writing newspaper articles, you know, from, the, from Wilson to Nixon, so the great American century almost, he was advisor to all the presidents. He was invited to the Oval Office, no matter what the party was, Republicans, Democrats, didn't matter. He was there offering advice and then keeping his counsel. Okay? Um, and so this is very platonic. This is, you know, like philosopher journalist, philosopher king. It's kind of what Lippmann did. All right? And so the interesting thing, of course, is if you look at this um, dynamic between Bernays and Lippmann, Right? Neither of these guys, I would say in any straightforward way, are really truth-tellers. Both of them are kind of liars in a way, but they're liars in different senses and with different goals, strategic goals in mind, and so forth. And that the thing that ends up mattering uh, is basically what sort of game do you think you're playing? Okay, Because the thing that I would say uh, distinguishes somebody like Bernays from Lippmann the most um, is the fact that they actually configure the public rather differently. They sort of see the, the, the way in which you need to address the public to be quite different. Bernays actually believes, and he says this a lot, um, that people can decide for themselves. We'll put these products out there. We'll put our clients out there. We'll publicize all kinds of stuff. It's up to you to decide. You believe it? You don't believe it. Fine. Okay? Whereas Lippmann actually is concerned about the actual response the public will give. And so he believes as a result, and this is where Lippmann, in a sense, you might say, uh, underrates the public's uh, intelligence, you might say, more than Bernays does. Now, you might say Bernays overvalues the public's intelligence for self-serving reasons, right? Flattering them, as it were, by saying, you can make choices. You know what the difference is between this soap suds and that soap suds. Come on, guy. You know the difference between Coke and Pepsi. Come on, you know? Um, whereas Lippmann said, no, no, they don't know. And so as a result, we need to be operating with them in a kind of paternalistic mode, essentially. And that's where all this studied neutrality and lack of emotion and being balanced and all the rest of it comes from. But neither of them are, are truth-tellers in any kind of straightforward way at all, okay? Now, why is this the case? Um, well, I mean, th there are a lot of things to be said. I don't want to go on forever about this, but, but I do think part of what, we are, what, what we're talking about here when we talk about the post-truth condition and why it doesn't fit with our kind of normal 
discourses of truth and lying, um, is that uh, it takes uncertainty very seriously, I think it's fair to say, okay? Um, both Bernays and Littmann, if you move beyond the strategic level at which they manage their self-presentation, what, they're, what, they're, what they recognize together is that there's uncertainty. There's uncertainty about what people will do. There is uncertainty about how they'll decide about things. And so then the question is, how do you manage the uncertainty? That's the bottom line, right? And the post-truth condition is about that. And the way you manage uncertainty is by giving them a frame of action, right? In other words, and this is where, you know, in, in, in the media, uh, those of you who do media studies, you know about agenda setting, right? That's in a way kind of one of these ideas that's related to this that comes out of this kind of discussion. Um, and there it's not a matter of, you know, we already know in advance what's true or false or anything, but what you're trying to do is you're trying to structure the uncertainty so that, uh, you know, whatever happens, your side's not too disadvantaged, okay? Um, one context where I think this matters, and I'll, I'll end here, um, has to do with the development of think tanks. If you want to talk about institutions that in a way are in the uncertainty management business on a regular basis without necessarily declaring that certain things are true and false and so forth, are think tanks. And as you know, they put out all these reports and things like this. And I think it's always worth keeping in mind that when you go back and you look at the heritage of think tanks, right, the Fabian Society uh, comes up, okay? And uh, one of the things that I think is really important here uh, to understand about Fabianism, which, which is also part of this story, I think, in a very deep way, is that there are certain things at play here. First of all, there's a sense in which there's a recognition of uncertainty. So in that sense, there's a certain kind of humility that's sort of already brought into this question. But at the same time, there's also a sense in which you can have a strategic advantage over this. But it's not a strategic advantage that's actually going to give you a quick win, because we're talking about uncertainties, and, we're and usually we're talking about trying to manage a very complex kind of space. So what you're talking about is a long-term strategy, a certain way, a general way of thinking. And a general way of thinking is not something that can be easily parsed out into being true or false. But if people start to adopt a certain kind of framework over time, right, then the conditions for what people think can be true and false may get closer and closer to the sort of options that actually benefit your side. Right, so, the, so if we're talking about a political discourse, Right? It's not that they have to support um, this kind of policy rather than that sort of policy, but rather the options are framed, the alternative options are framed in such a way that they presuppose something that you think is very important. Right? And that's what think tanks do. They do all this kind of framing. Right? And if you look at the, the, uh, and, and, uh, you know, the Fabian Society's relationship with the Labour Party over the course of the 20th century is a very interesting one. Okay? Uh, especially... Uh, some of you may recall that, uh, again, this was, uh, what, 2015, it seems like ages ago now, when David Cameron was prime minister. And, and some of you may recall the, the Conservative Party uh, conference. Uh, he gave this really amazing speech, actually, very progressive kind of speech, because he was kind of on his form, right? He was, this was, strange as it may sound, the following year he'd come tumbling down, but he was really riding high in 2015. Um, and he gave this speech Right, and this was just after Jeremy Corbyn had been elected as leader of the Labour Party. Um, and the Fabian Society said, Cameron, Cameron's got it. He's the progressive man. 
Because if you, you, you go back to the speech and you read it, you, you begin to see what they, I know, Corbyn is just a man of the past, okay? Now, this is very characteristic of the way think tanks operate. So in other words, there's not party loyalty per se, but rather there is this thing of following the ideas and structuring the arguments so that they're within a certain kind of range, right? This was a thing in a way that the Fabians like. If you think about the coalition and new labor, right? right the, the realms of possibility were within a fairly kind of narrow area where, you know, everybody was kind of a neoliberal. Everyone was still nevertheless talking about aspirations and stuff like that. And that was kind of this sort of, um, you know, kind of almost like a consensus going on across all the major parties. You see? And so the Fabian Society was kind of nurturing that along during that period. Now, of course, that failed. Corbyn, you know, Brexit, all the rest of it happened. And, 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 and so things are much more messy now. But my point about this is that in none of this one is actually talking about saying things that you believe to be true or false, but rather structuring the possibilities for people to think about what can be true and false. That is ultimately what you're talking about. And that is the post-truth condition. Um, and this is the kind of thing that I focus on in, in my book. And it's about ultimately modal power, controlling the power over what people, controlling what people think is possible. Okay, so I will stop here maybe and take some discussion. Okay, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. In a post-truth world, you eliminate one of those things. We're no longer considering the truth anymore. This is at the window. Uh, and we're left with justification and belief. And you, at several points, refer to people as not truth-tellers as people who are saying things they, they may or may not necessarily believe. Yeah. So it's on that side of this. I guess. I mean, well, I'm going to see where you go with this, because this is not necessarily... I'm not necessarily all that comfortable with that framing, but we'll go with it. Okay. <laughs> uh, but at several other points, when you, especially when you invoke Plato and the lie and things Bernays is saying, it seems like it's justification that's doing the work. There's some independent claim being made about the utility or the sure. worthworthiness of some speech act, and so that's where it rests. And then really belief is either in or there. Uh, so there's yeah. justification all the way down in that case. You're calling that justification. Um, I mean, that's the thing. I guess I'm a little hung up on the word justification for this, but maybe that maybe I do agree with that. Yeah, if that's what you want to call it, justification. Why do you want to call it justification? No, no, I understand that's what he's doing, but I'm yeah. but, but you're mapping it onto what I'm doing. I mean, the um, but no, okay. Um, yeah. No, look, look, if, 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 I'm, if I'm Bernays, right, and I want you to buy some soap suds, I don't care why you buy the soap suds at the end of the day, right? So in other words, I'm not going to check to see whether you've bought it because of this aspect of my advertising campaign or that aspect of my advertising campaign. In fact, a good advertising campaign puts a lot of different things out there. I mean, this is one of the things, like, again, if, for those of you who, who remember Ronald Reagan, 
This was one of the things that people always said was really strong about Ronald Reagan as a candidate. People treated him as a Rorschach, basically, right? He sold, in a way, he was, he, he was a good, he could sell himself very well. But if you ask the various people who voted for him, what exactly was he selling about himself? What was it that you actually bought about Reagan? They'd all come up with different things, right? And, and, and Bernays, I mean, this is, and public relations thinks that's genius, right? And so it's not that people are actually coming to accept this candidate or buy this good because they've somehow, as it were, bought into some kind of justification that you, the guy promoting him, is trying to push. In fact, if you're really doing your job well, you're pushing lots of justifications, you might say, in the same product, some of which may contradict each other, actually, right? So, you know, so some people like the fact, you know, some people think Reagan is very shrewd. He just seems stupid. Or other people think, I don't care if he's smart. He's a regular guy, right? I mean, and these things don't sit that well together. But nevertheless, both of those things were very important in people actually supporting him. And at the end of the day, what matters isn't that he gets the majority of votes in the presidential election. You see, that's kind of, that's the dynamic we're talking about here. Um, and so you can be really open-minded from that standpoint in terms of, you know, you're, you're, you're countenancing why people might buy this, why they might believe this. You can be really quite open-minded about the thing because you are so strategically oriented. That's the thing. It's a, it's a, it's a different kind of epistemology. That's why I was a little resistant about the Gettier thing, because that's a very classical way of looking at things. But... We're talking about something really quite different. Yeah. So um, I would like to go back to the start and ask, what do you mean by truth? Like, how far does the truth go? What, what is the truth? What the I don't know the leaders think, or is it the Western sort of view on, on of the world, or is it necessarily a bad thing that some things are challenged now more? Well, look, I I I myself am not. I'm not losing too much sleep over the post-truth condition in the sense I think this is something we should get used to, to understand, and, and, and I think it's actually quite liberating in a certain way because I do think the post-truth condition actually gets us to think much more openly and clearly about what we take to be possible and not possible, right? And, and I think, generally speaking, there's a lot more things that are possible than people have normally realized, and this is why everybody got Brexit wrong and everybody got the Trump election wrong. Right? People were really had very narrow sense of what was possible. Okay? And I think that we, you know, and just to, and if you look at the way Trump does his policies, he's always stretching the limits of possibility, right? You know, he thinks that killing the Iran deal is a great idea and it'll lead to something better, right? He thinks he can, you know, insult the uh, leader of North Korea and then make peace with him. I mean, you know, these are, this is really stretching the limits of what people think is diplomatically possible. And he so far is kind of getting away with it, right? Um, and so I think, for generally speaking, this is a, this is a very interesting. It's a kind of a, a welcome thing. But um, the point I would make, if you go, let's say, let, let's look at Plato, right? Now, does Plato think he knows the truth? Okay, um, because I guess Plato would be kind of the point man on truth. If anyone thinks he knew the truth, Plato did, right? And and the and and um, and I, I, to be honest with you, um, I think he uh, he knows. The kind of truth that I think Plato probably um, could be said to have known or thought he had known, which motivates all the rest of the stuff that he did, is something about human nature. Maybe. Maybe human nature is the thing that Plato perhaps, you know, if you want to talk about where, what is the, you know, what is actually has some, something that one could call truth standing, would be his view about human nature. Um, 
and then that and then that from that follows all kinds of views about what do you think people could be told and, and be able to deal with and what they can't deal with and all of that kind of stuff, right? Um, and that's when the issue about noble lies and stuff like this. I mean, one of the things I didn't talk about here, but I do talk a little bit about in the book, is the double truth doctrine, right? That you somehow the elites really know the story of what's going on, and, but you can't actually tell that story to the masses, not because they're stupid, but because they wouldn't be able to handle it psychologically, right? Now, when the double truth doctrine gets advanced in the Middle Ages, Okay, so it's inspired by Plato, but it's really a medieval thing. It has a lot to do with trying to relate uh, the so-called truths of religion with the truths of science, right? Aristotle, usually, in this context. Um, and, of course, the problem, you know, what the elite truth turns out to be, in practice, is the fact that our holy book is completely incoherent. Right? Right? So, it's, so, so the reason... So the, because... Um, the people in Islam, this is a very interesting kind of debate. Again, I don't want to do the whole history. But if you go to the uh, 12th, 13th century, so just the, before the period where, when uh, the, the Christian Europe uh, really rediscovers all these Islamic texts and, and they translate Aristotle from Arabic and all the rest of it, um, there is a very interesting debate between al-Ghazali, who was the head uh, guy in Baghdad, um, and Averroes, you may be... Ibn Rushdi, you familiar with him? He's uh, usually seen as one of the great uh, liberal uh, Muslim thinkers from the Middle Ages. Uh, he was known as the commentator. He was the one through whom Thomas Aquinas first uh, came to understand Aristotle. Um, and uh, Averroes was not a cleric. Uh, he was a lawyer, actually, a jurist. Um, and Averroes was promoting a double truth doctrine. And, um, and one of the things that Averroes was coming up to the conclusion of believing um, which again was incredibly controversial, was, well, you know, I'm trying to make sense of the Quran. There's a lot of contradiction there, but one of the things that I think stands out, especially if we look at what Aristotle and all these Greek guys are saying, is that God's pretty much stuck with natural law. Once God creates natural law, he's got to abide by it. It's just, it applies to him just as much as it applies to everything else. God can't change it once he's done it. Now, this, okay, now, this is a nightmare, okay? This is a nightmare kind of conclusion. And, and he also goes on, says, you know, the Quran is quite inconsistent with regard to the characterization of God and so forth. And so I'm trying to really make some sense of this. Now, this is the so-called elite truth. This is my point. This is the elite truth, okay? The elite truth is not, in other words, some kind of, um, you know, what, ideal story of how the world really works or something like that, but rather it a very disturbing kind of truth, one that kind of, if it were made public, would create all kinds of schisms between sacred and secular knowledge, which it did actually in the West. If you look at the people who are called the Averroists within the Western tradition, they are basically the ones who drop theology altogether because if God's bound by natural law, we don't need to worry about God anymore, we just do natural law. And these are the people, they got tossed out of Paris in 1277 when the edict took place and they migrated to Italy and they founded the schools in Pisa in northern Italy that Galileo and people like that came from a couple of centuries later. That's a short story of the whole thing. But the point is these were Averroists. These were people who basically believed God was bound by natural law, in which case then you don't have to think about God anymore. Natural law will give it to you. God's surplus to requirements. 
Now you see, that's, that's the so-called elite truth in the double truth doctrine. Now, what do you do with that, right? I mean, I, I mean you know, the thing is, it, this is where it becomes a psychological problem if you were to actually tell the masses, right? Uh, but the nature of the truth itself is not one that comforts one, right? It's not a truth that, in a way, gives you the ultimate nature of reality, you know, kind of issue that resolves all the disagreements, but rather what it does is it shows a very fundamental disagreement, very fundamental issue. And so Averroes was making the point that basically this kind of stuff ought to be left for scholars, right? And in a sense, you should just keep on teaching Islam in the usual way you do and just don't worry about Aristotle and don't worry about thinking about science or anything like that. I mean, that was kind of his view. His view was a kind of double truth. But you see, Al-Ghazali, who believed in a unit, you know, he had a kind of more platonic vision, he believed in a unified knowledge, he thought that was heretical. He thought that sort of thing was heretical. Okay? Um, now, you can see both sides of this issue, okay? And so the role that truth plays in this kind of an argument is not, whatever it is, it isn't this kind of ultimate picture of reality that makes everything clear and everything's resolved and they all live happily ever, end, ever ending, you know? It's not that. It's a different kind of idea here. Yeah? Um, I had a question about the, the, throughout the trajectory, trajectory you had kind of two rails going, not just the philosophical, but you also had one eye on the literary too. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and I was wondering, but missing from that literary rail was uh, what I would uh, the, the genre that sort of is the locus of our thinking about fictionality, which is the novel and its rise from the 17th century or the 18th century beyond. And it's also uh, the place in which this idea of a larger public audience, a larger yeah. literate reading audience, and new participants in public discourse are coming to these, uh, coming to make these judgments or these, um, coming to discern between the yeah. So what's the, place, what's the place of the novel in this story? Well, I do say a little bit in the book about Rousseau, uh, Rousseau and, and his kind of role in this. Um, and one of the things that I, I claim uh, about Rousseau is that um, he actually, in, an, in a somewhat novelistic form, actually uh, provides a kind of language for greater emotional expression. Uh, than had previously existed in literature, okay? Uh, which then people took up as almost, um, you know, kind of in the way soap operas get adopted today, right? One of the interesting things about, you know, if you look at these soap operas, um, where they, they end up becoming templates for people's lives, right? Because in a sense, they actually articulate a lot of feelings and emotions that are kind of latent in people, but they don't have the language for it or anything. Uh, but once they see it, right, once they hear it, they recognize it, and then they adopt it. And in fact, uh, Rousseau um, was, uh, in his time, was a kind of a, um, he was a guy who had a fan base, right? In the sense that people would write to him saying, you've changed my life, right? Because you've given me this kind of a, a range of emotional expressiveness that hadn't existed before. So he opened up the possibility, you might say, for new emotions, right? For new that had not really been articulated before. Emotional range was very restricted prior to that point. Now, of course, the novel explores this even more and more if you go to the 19th, 20th century, 
you know, we get when we get to the naturalistic novels, we got guys like Emil Zola and Balzac being very explicit that they're actually trying to explore new possibilities and things like this, new ways of looking at things. They're very explicit about this. But I would, I would go back to Rousseau in the beginning, in the in the 18th century, um, for this idea of the novel as opening up the possibility for yeah, for for psychological, you know, richer kind of uh, moral psychology, basically, uh, which of course the Romantic period very much picked up on. But that actually required articulation. You see, that's the interesting thing, right? Because uh, even you know, and people respond to it immediately. So it's not like he somehow imposed it right on them, but rather he elicited it from them, right? And this then led to a general level of expressiveness all around. So I do think the novel does indeed have this kind of character. I mean, there's been studies done of of the reading habits of all these 18th century characters, right? Because some of these people wrote kept diaries and talked about how they used the books they owned and all the rest of it. Um, and, and it's quite clear. A lot of these people would keep uh, novels by Rousseau, um, you know, on the bed table where the Bible might be or something as kind of a way of reflection, a mode of reflection and so forth to open up their minds to stuff. Yeah, so the, so the novel definitely was a very important... I, I do may, say something about that, actually. I don't, I don't do the whole history of the novel or anything, but, 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 uh, but I do think with regard to Rousseau, because I think he is a very pivotal figure, actually, in, in opening up human psychology. Yeah. I wonder if you could say, so I, want to, I really like the reframing of poetry and poetry power. And so one feature of the postmodern tradition is the political system. The tradition in the Asymmetric distribution of moral power. Yes. It's, it's true that you know, Bernays won in, in PR, but Bernays has convinced one side of the political spectrum, and the other are still, so they still make a living. Yes. Uh, arguing over you know, truth and merits to the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of our current political predicaments are wrought by this asymmetry. Yes. Uh, and so I wonder if you can expand well, stuff you, you promised but didn't get to when you talked about the politics. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, okay, so, okay, if you actually get, if you begin the book in the beginning, the, the politics is right there, actually. So uh, um, a person who very much influences my thinking on this is um, Vilfredo Pareto. I don't know if you are familiar with him. Um, the Italian political economist, one of the founders of sociology. Um, Pareto was a Machiavellian political thinker, um, and he was very famous for this idea of the circulation of elites, which in a way is in Plato too, uh, except that Pareto thought, uh, unlike, I mean, Plato in a way was devising the philosopher king and the whole strategy behind the Republic as a way of stopping the circulation of elites, you might say, right? That's sort of Stop it once and for all. Um, whereas Pareto thought that this is uh, inevitable. This is just kind of the way the world works, so it's just an endless cycle. Now, the thing is, who are these elites? Okay. Now, Pareto, by the way, one thing that makes Pareto interesting to us, I think, um, is that he really updates Machiavelli because what he's really thinking about is parliamentary democracy. And he's talking about the elites of the party system and how they circulate in terms of what their identities are. Okay. And so the two main characters, and you'll see how uh, Bernays and Lippmann fit, fit into this in a moment, 
lions and foxes. Again, term for Machiavelli. Um, and the lions are the defenders of the status quo. They, uh, and what the status quo means, again, is the restriction on modal power, right? In other words, it's my way or it's no way, right? And, 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 and this is where, for example, in the Brexit campaign, Project Fear. Remember Project Fear, the remaining side? The remainers are the lions in, in the Brexit campaign, right? Because the remainers are the guys who basically say, you think about Brexit, Ooh, we're going to fall off the cliff. It's a precipice out there. You know, you've only got, this is the only way to go. And all, and, and all of the established figures lined up in the same way on this matter, right? And basically, I mean, Boris Johnson nailed it on the head, right? Project Fear. And that is, in fact, the primary way in which the lions operate, right? They're, so you got to kind of take that animal image a bit seriously, right? Lions look fierce, but the way they really, you know, exercise power is basically by scaring people, right? They, they're very threatening, but they don't have to do anything because people back off because they realize, I'm never going to beat this lion, okay? And, of course, what is it that gives the lion, you know, its leonine quality? Well, it's the weight of tradition, right? It's authority, it's you know, the large number of interlocking elites, you know, backing the same position. It's all of that stuff, right? So it's this kind of consolidation of power. That's alliance, okay? Um, and this is where um, somebody like, uh, you know, Walter Lippmann uh, was very much of this leonine persuasion that in a sense, um, he didn't believe you had to threaten the public or anything, but he did believe that you had to always convey the impression uh, that whatever disagreements, agree, uh, you know, take place, uh, you know, let's say in the inner sanctums of government and so forth, um, they're over relatively small terrain and that, the, you know, the cabinet's all on board more or less and that they'll sort something out. So obviously in this country, we don't live under those circumstances, as you know, right? I mean, you know, this is, this is a total nightmare from alliance standpoint, the way in which the British cabinet currently operates, where, pe you know, people are just mouthing off about everything, Okay. But Lippmann was saying, no, the way you have to present, you know, the way the state is operating, even when there is uncertainty in the inner sanctums of the overall, Oval Office, is that we've got it under control. Okay? And so this has to do with a certain kind of demeanor, where you present things, right? You don't get very excited, right? You use kind of very bland kind of formal language, this kind of stuff. Now, the foxes, on the other hand, um, basically try to flip all the stuff that the lions think is positive into something negative. So in other words, the weight of tradition, right, is just basically hiding corruption, right? Because one of the things the lions are always saying is, you know, because the lions, if the lions have been in power long enough, not everything that they have said they're able to do will have been done, right? If you last long enough, there are going to be problems. And those problems may not go away very easily. But of course, if you're a lion, what you say is you stick with us. We're almost there. We're going to do it. We're getting there. Right? Whereas if you do something else, you'll fall off the cliff. Okay? That's the lion strategy. But the foxes are saying, look at these guys. They've been in power for all these generations. And look at what they've accomplished. We've got all these problems. And in fact, many of the things they say is good is really bad. And they're hiding stuff. There's corruption going on. And the fact that they all agree with each other is suspicious. Right? So this is a fox's strategy. Right? The foxes right, are the ones who want to expand the modal space. They want people to start thinking that, in fact, what seems to be ironclad truth on the part of the political establishment is, in fact, really bit dodgy. And so in that respect, then there's not that much difference in terms of plausibility between sticking with the establishment 
and going with the alternative. And then you, on top of that, you say the alternative will open you to opportunities you've never seen before. Think Brexit, right? We are going to be ruling the waves. We are going to have trade deals with everyone unseen before in human history. We're going to reinvent the Commonwealth and the Empire and everything. Right? Right? This is Brexit, right? This is very foxy, right? Because what you do then is you, you have opened up the space of possibility tremendously, and you're now getting people to take this stuff seriously. Right? And at the end of the day, what you want is their vote. Right? What you want is their vote. So again, you, you, know, you always have to keep your eye on the ball. What you want is their vote, and this is how you're going to do it. You're going to get them to hallucinate all these amazing possibilities. Now, of course, where the foxes fall down is when they have to deliver something, as we see. I mean, you know, so, so now you're, you know, you see with Brexit again, we're looking at the proposals, we're trying to figure out how are we going to pull this shit off, you know? And, 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 and it's not clear. And this has always been the Achilles heel of the foxes. And, and you know, in, the, in Pareto's story, what typically happens is the, po- the foxes end up, you know, falling over themselves and infighting and, you know, they can't agree on anything. Um, and then one fox usually arises and becomes a new lion, right? And so one thinks about, I mean, Pareto is the only example in, in the French Revolution, Napoleon, right, who starts off as a corporal, right? And then, you know, as, as all these guys who are running the French Revolution are basically knifing each other in the back and guillotining each other and everything, that Napoleon's the last one standing, right? And, you know, um, and, and so... This is the kind of dynamic we're talking about here, right? Where you have lions and foxes in circulation with each other. Um, and, uh, and in a sense, the inevitability comes from the fact that the longer the status quo is in power, the harder it becomes to actually cover up all the problems, right? So in other words, the, you know, what, your, your strength also becomes your weakness. You're more exposed, okay? And if you look at the way in which Trump took after Hillary Clinton in that campaign, Right? Hillary Clinton was such an easy target because she had done so much. She was so public. She'd been the public eye for 30 years, for heaven's sakes. That makes, you know, at one level, that makes you the most qualified person ever front for office, but also makes you the most vulnerable one. Because you've got this paper trail, you've got all sorts of stuff. If you've been mucking around in power throughout your entire life, you're bound to have cost some shit, right? It'd be pretty amazing if you didn't. But of course, that can then be used against you. You see, so this is the circulation. This is how the circulation works. And I think when you look at something like Brexit and the Trump campaign, it fits the story perfectly. You see, the question is whether this cycle can be stopped or whether you actually want it to be stopped. I suppose there's an interesting question there about whether you think it's a, you know, because some people might say, hey, that's the way the world is. Cool, we'll just keep on going like that. Right? So someone like Edward Bernays, I would have thought, you know, could live with this. Right? Whereas Littman thinks, my God, this is one of the things that causes enormous amount of instability, which in the end of the day can actually undermine democracy generally. Right? That's the thing that, that uh, is the worrisome, I would say, somebody like Littman would have about this picture. But I say that that's the political, that's the political um, you know, master narrative, if you want to call it that, that sort of lurks behind here, uh, which is about the, 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 the lions constraining possibility, concentrating modal power, and the fox is opening it up, right? And it goes in a cycle like that. Yes. Oh, we got two questions. We'll go for you and then you. Okay. Um, I, I'm, 
You mean the role social media plays in this now? Yep. Oh, yeah, no, no, look. Well, I don't know. I mean, that's an interesting question. You're, that, that's an interesting point you're raising. Um, I mean, look, for, on, your, on your main point, uh, I am, in fact, sensitive to the way in which technology changes the character of these things. In fact, this is one reason why I do spend some time in the book talking about Bernays and Lippmann, because I do think when we start to get to broadcast media, right, uh, in the 20th century, then in a sense, this whole Plato business really takes on a whole new form, right? And it becomes, you know, much more all-encompassing and, and its effects can be much larger. But you're also right, I think we do live in a time, the platform capitalism and the rest of it, um, the distributed network character of communications, right? So in other words, uh, the kind of period we live in now, in a way, makes it very difficult, I would say, to reinvent Lippmann's role. Because Lippmann, in a way, what, the possibility for somebody like Lippmann to really get, uh, get his way across is because the nature of broadcasting was elite. In, in other words, the way the technology worked in the 20th century, until the end of the 20th century, um, was pretty much relatively few broadcasters, lots of people getting communicated to. So if you were part of that elite, if you had access to that elite, um, then in a sense, you could, you could kind of control things because it was so asymmetrical, right? That's what broadcasting is about. But we, we have gone beyond broadcasting, right? We have got these distributed networks of communication uh, and in which people get news from all kinds of places, typically customized, right, to fit their needs and so forth. And this creates another layer of uncertainty in the system. It's a technologically induced layer of uncertainty that I think actually makes it really difficult, short of outright censorship of the Chinese type, uh, that you can do anything Lippmann-esque these days. That's my view. I think the Lippmann thing is really hard to pull off now. But that you, I, I don't think you can reproduce the Lippmann kind of model of, of, of in some way, um, having a kind of controlled uh, presentation of the media uh, because the structure of the way media operates is no longer so asymmetrical, right? I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's now people are broad, you know, people are communicating from everywhere to everywhere potentially. Many, many. Yes. Yes, like Bitcoin, blockchain, this yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a very interesting. That's a very interesting angle to run. 
You, are you run? Are you working with? That's very interesting. <laughs> no, no, I think that's a very. I hadn't, I hadn't put those two things together, but that's very interesting. That's interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And I wonder if I'm here on the relationship between science and politics. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. I felt, I mean, maybe it's just the way that you were explaining it, yeah. maybe it's just the, the history of science and scientific methods, but it was almost as though in the original positing of something as provisionally true to see where that took us, there wasn't an appreciation then for the fact that posing something as true even provisionally can make it Okay, there are two, I mean, in, in a way, the relationship between politics and science in, in, in the way I discuss post-truth is happening at two levels. Um, I really only talked about one of them in, the, in, in this talk, um, and that's the level at which uh, the degree to which one needs to be committed to the truth in order to make some kind of progress, okay? Um, and, and the point about talking about fictionalism and all that, uh, this instrumentalism, was that that's kind of an open issue, that it's not even cl- it is not clear that even in science one needs to be that committed, you know, on the working basis to actually believing that something is true in order to advance the cause of science. Um, but there's another sense in which the politics and science thing are also similar, and that actually has to do with the circulation of elite stuff. So one of the things I do talk about in the book, in the early part of the book, um, is in fact the way this kind of model of lions and foxes from Pareto actually influenced Thomas Kuhn's conception of scientific revolutions. Okay, so if you're familiar with Thomas Kuhn, I take it everybody's kind of familiar with Thomas Kuhn, he's got a cyclical theory of scientific change, basically, okay? Um, and it's very, and, and, and so the point here is, right, for Kuhn, you know, um, and by the way, this, this is, uh, this, this large book I wrote on Kuhn that was alluded to in the beginning of the, of the, uh, of the presentation, of, of my introduction, um, has a lot on that. Um, Kuhn was a, a student at Harvard in the 1930s when uh, Pareto's works were being translated into English. Uh, and the biggest promoter of Pareto, probably in the United States at the time, was this guy, Lawrence Henderson, who was a biochemist who taught the first history of science courses at Harvard. Um, and, and Henderson, who was kind of a kingmaker, a local kingmaker at Harvard, um, conducted a reading group on Pareto's works, which had people uh, like Joseph Schumpeter and Talcott Parsons and Robert Merton and Kuhn and James Bryan Cohn and all the major kind of Harvard people of that time, both very junior people and senior people, um, to kind of get their heads around Pareto, who was being presented at the time. And I have to say, again, this is the thing. I mean, actually, you all seem quite young. Uh, But when I was a student uh, back in the 1970s, Pareto was still being uh, promoted 
as one of the founding figures of sociology and was even being very much talked about, as he was talked about in the 1930s, um, as the marks of the master class, right? So in other words, the, the vision, the scope, right? The explanation for social change and all the various stuff, right? Pareto's works are as rich as Marx's works in that regard, but it's done from the, stand, from the top, as it were, from the standpoint of the elites. Um, and uh, you see, Harvard was very interested in this kind of thing, given its own self-positioning, uh, in a very volatile period in the 1930s where America was increasingly being seen as being the leader of the so-called free world, then America has to get some theory of elites going for itself that it can actually follow. And Pareto was, and, and Pareto was very influential in the 1940s and 50s during the Cold War and so forth. Um, he fell out of fashion in the 1980s, uh, and uh, as elitism did generally, actually. Um, but Kuhn, the point about Kuhn here is that if you look at Kuhn's theory of scientific change, right, uh, the kind of thing that Kuhn primarily identifies with the conduct of science, what he calls normal science, the stuff that's done within a paradigm, is the lion's version of science. Okay? Um, the lion's version of science. So in other words, you've got a kind of monopoly, right, over a discipline. It's a monopoly in terms of explanatory framework, methodology, what counts as good problems, bad problems. And the paradigm is in full control of its own activities. Right? So in other words, it, it, it provides its own self-presentation. It says what, when it's succeeding, when it's not succeeding, all the rest of it. It does that for as long as it can go on. But then, of course, there are all these problems that do not get solved. And then at some point, a crisis comes about. And it's only once the crisis comes about, when the paradigm, you know, when the paradigm in some sense is being challenged on its own turf, that then you start to get the opponents coming in, the foxes, in a sense. Right? These are the people who, in a way, start to uh, seed, so even more serious doubts. So in other words, it's not just that the paradigm cannot solve certain kinds of uh, problems, but that the fact that they can't solve the problems is indicative of fundamental flaws in the assumptions of the paradigm, and so the paradigm now needs to be overturned. So you can no longer just cosmetically you know, deal with it. You have to actually go back to fundamentals. And so one of the things that, and, and so this is the foxy moment, this is the crisis, right, what Kuhn calls the crisis. And then this is quickly followed by a revolution and you get a new paradigm. Okay, so, so these revolutions don't last very long, right? They, they, there's a quick turnover and then you get the new paradigm in place. So the foxes are around only for a very limited period of time in Kuhn's picture, right? It's mostly a, a story of lions. And the lions, of course, the first thing they do is rewrite the history and all the rest of it to make it look like they were destined to win anyway, okay? Um, and so that's the kind of story. That's a very, now that's a very, you know, well, well that story gets taught a lot. Um, and people, I guess, it's become in a way absorbed into the culture in certain ways. Uh, it's actually a very peculiar way of thinking about the history of science from the standpoint of people who think about science as Galileo and stuff like that, right? Um, you know, uh, it's a very, you know, it, it, it's a very limited kind of story, right? But, but it's, it's a story that derives from this story. That's the point, right? It derives from this story. Um, and, 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 it, and it's interesting, because one of the things that Kuhn is sensitive to, and something I picked up on when I read Kuhn, but I don't think most people who, who read Kuhn really pay much attention to it, is this idea of the need to always be, um, that you have to control your own history. The scientists have to control their history, right? Um, you know, so in other words, uh, because that's the only way you're going to get some kind of consistent story of progress is going to be if all the scientists are singing from the same hymn sheet in terms of what problems we solve, which ones we haven't solved, 
right? Who solved them, right? So it's important that you name the stuff and that you have it all very well organized. And when you make the paradigm shift, right, um, um, Kuhn talks about it as an Orwellian moment where you basically just rewrite the history to make it look like this new thing you're now doing was the thing that all you guys were trying to do anyway. Okay? So Kuhn, I think, was very... Um, very sensitive in his own way, and maybe this had a lot to do with the fact that he was writing this book during the Cold War, you know, but the ideological character of science is self-presentation. Science has to present a united front in a certain kind of way, right? And this is very much the lion's way of doing business. That's the point, right? It's a very airbrushed history. It's one of progress. It, it doesn't talk about certain things, right? They're just strategically ignored. They don't have standing. Right? And, and it gives you a kind of tunnel vision that looks progressive. Right? That's, the, that's the Kuhn view. And I think that fits with this kind of story that I've been telling you. I think that's a very nice okay. note to end this on. And okay. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Okay. It's, it's no lie at all. Nobody no, I can't. I say that this was excellent. I hope you'll all join me in uh, a drink. Yeah. Snacks afterwards to continue a more informal conversation. And in thanking Professor Fuller for a great talk. Well, thank you. Thank you.